0: Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. We are at the Music Hall Loft in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and we are so happy to be here with some special guests for this podcast, the second one that we've recorded here. We've got Matt Lewis, the amazing chef of Moxie, where I got to have dinner just tonight, Matt. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And Maureen Beauregard, who runs a really important program called Families in Transition that is so connected to the work of Share Our Strength. We're thrilled to have you here, Maureen. Thank you. Thank you you for having me. Um, And to our guests, I know that um, one of the things that's special about us being in New Hampshire is our Portsmouth Taste Committee, which for 25 years has put on an amazing, amazing event called Taste of the Nation. And so I just want to give a round of applause to our incredible volunteers. And I also... um, I want to call out Provident Bank uh, and Dave Mansfield for the sponsorship of this event. It means so much to have Provident Bank as part of this, so thank you. I've, uh, I've been coming to New Hampshire since 1982, and um, I feel a strong connection to the state in, in many, many ways. I initially started coming here to volunteer in Senator uh, Gary Hart's campaign and uh, living uh, literally sleeping on the floor of Will Terrace, my friend, in Manchester. Um, but so many other connections, and one of the great things about it is uh, just to acknowledge how hard this uh, Portsmouth Taste Committee works. Uh, they're the ones who, who do the heavy lifting, and I think of this in, in connection of another uh, New Hampshire experience I had. And it's one in which I learned something from the wisdom of my uh, son, Nate Shore, who's here today, too. He's 13, and definitely the wisest 13-year-old. I know, but uh, I had the opportunity to be the commencement speaker at Southern New Hampshire University some, must have been six or seven or eight years ago now and as a result of that they gave me an honorary doctorate and uh, and I, you know when you give a commencement speech they do that and i had it up in my closet i shouldn't tell them it's up on the back shelf of my closet but my son nate was walking by one day and he saw it and he thought it was a diploma and he said dad he said did did you go to southern new hampshire university and i said no why and he said well it looks like they gave you a diploma and i said no that's, that's not a diploma it's an honorary doctorate and he said but you didn't go there and i said no he said, so in other words, you got it for doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> and I said, Well, it, it, it wasn't nothing exactly. I, I said, I, I think they gave it to me because they were hoping that the work of Shara Strength would inspire some of their students to do similar types of things. He said, Dad, he said, Do you really think it's inspiring to go to school every day for four years and see the first degree go to somebody who's been there for five minutes? <laughs> and then he walked away. He walked away and shook his head and said, as if he were tweeting from the White House, "Sad." <laughs> so, anyhow, you are full of wisdom, Nate, and I'm glad you always you always keep me honest. Um, but I but I say that in the context of never forgetting where the real work and the hard work gets done, and that's with our volunteers that share our strength here in the Portsmouth area, our taste committee, and so many other uh, volunteers uh, across the country. So. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Matt, as I mentioned, we had an amazing dinner at uh, Moxie, and it's a, really become an iconic restaurant here. It's uh, probably the third or fourth time we've been. We were at a party of 15 uh, tonight, and I had to run out a little bit early to get over here. But would love to hear the story of what led you to Moxie and what led you to being such, a, uh, such an accomplished chef.
1: Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this tonight. Um, Anything that your organization does, I really enjoy being part of. Um, my my father was a manager of a hotel uh, in uh, Hampton, New Hampshire, and so I kind of grew up, like a lot of kids, just going to work with him at a young age, and his office was kind of boring to me. Um, he counted money, did paperwork, I don't know what he did. Um, so I would go into the kitchen because it was more action going on, and so I kind of got acclimated and accustomed to the kitchen life before I even really knew what... I was getting acclimated and accustomed to, and the chef there um, noticed that I was taking an interest in it more than just spending time, and he took me to the Culinary Institute of America to show it to me, and immediately I knew that that is what I wanted to do, so I went there. Um, While I was there, I learned about a level of dining that I hadn't been exposed to, um, a higher level of dining. That happens in larger cities as well as um, a chef named Thomas Keller, French laundry in california and uh, I had the opportunity to go out there while I was at school and I went out and that started the process of me um, pestering him until he gave me a job when I graduated,
0: so I went out to California. Um, I have a feeling it was more than pestering he's, it, I know thomas he 's got pretty high standards
1: it was a, a lot I think he just got sick of me bothering him, so he's like <laughs> i mean my my job. Um, the offer, you will, that he gave me was, if you get to California, we'll figure something out. And so that was enough. That was so I got it. in the car yep. and drove out. Um, and then I opened, per se, with him in New York City. Um,
0: and the French Laundry and per se, if folks haven't experienced them, they're both, I know French Laundry I've been to, per se, I don't think I have. Uh, French Laundry is kind of fixed price in maybe 10, 12, 13 courses, right? Yeah,
1: it's a very special place. And um, he's a very special chef. Uh, it's a really... Um, iconic American restaurant, Um, and then I ended up back in New Hampshire after doing that for a number of years. Um, I kind of needed a break. I thought I might go back to that realm of of dining and cuisine, Um, so I came back to crash on my parents' couch for a summer and uh, drink beer and hang out with my friends, (laughs) and through that time that I was... Here, I realized that I really liked it. Here, I started realizing there was a food community here, uh, culture here. I started meeting people like like Evan Mallet, um, like 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 Massimo, um, Greg Sessler, these other uh, Evan Hennessy, these 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 really great pillars of our food community. And I just realized I, I want to be part of that. Like, I really enjoy the feeling, the networking here, the sense of community. And then I started learning about this vast network of. Um, farmers and, and growers and, and fishermen and cheese makers that it's like wow I I feel kind of embarrassed that I grew up in New Hampshire and the whole time I had no idea that this network of of foodways and food systems were, were actually here and once those doors opened I knew that I that I wanted to stay in New Hampshire and so I didn't leave yet I haven't gotten kicked out yet
0: and uh, how old is Moxie uh, seven years seven years yeah. wow congratulations yeah. really incredible Great. Um, now, Maureen, you run this very important organization, which I think you founded in 1991. Families in Transition. Yes. Um, and as I had learned, you'd started with working with five women, I think, who were homeless. And one of the things that, uh, and it's now grown to be the, you know, the largest, most successful, and important and effective service provider to homeless families in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, what I'm curious about is. Somebody like Matt has mentors like Thomas Keller and that you can go to the Culinary Institute of America to learn how to do what you do. It's obviously drawing out of Matt this incredible talent that was there to begin with. But when you're working in a place of, in a field of um, homeless families or families in transition, how do you learn to do that?
2: Let's see. I wanted to say first that... um, uh, I know Paul LeBlanc at Southern New Hampshire University. Mm-hmm. He's an awesome cook, and I'm definitely going to tell him you're hiding. Your oh, diplomat. yeah, don't, don't tell him I'm hiding. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: we went to dinner there and blown away. He's such a good cook. Really? Oh, yes. Good to know. He's fabulous. And he cleans up. You don't have to do anything but sit there. Um so why Families in Transition? We, we've actually merged with New Horizons. So it's, right now our name is Families in Transition, New Horizons. You just have to take a big breath before you say yeah. it. Um, and um, so when I think about Families in Transition, I can't help but think about it's a very personal story. But after turning 50, I'm like, I don't care. I'm just going to say it out loud. So um, the reason I do it is because um, I lived with my parents until I was four. Um, and and then went into foster care. There were five of us. My mom was 23. I was the middle child. And um, prior to going into care, I remember being hungry. I remember going out on the streets trying to find food Um, and then um, being taken very quickly um, and put into foster care, which back in the 60s was just place them and forget them. Um, That wasn't a very good experience either. So um, I had done, child, I had done uh, uh, early childhood education, I was a substance misuse counselor, and I worked for DCYF doing child protection. That was a really hard job and I never should have taken it, uh, but I did it anyway and I'm glad I did. So um, Families in Transition was an opportunity to take all of my own experience plus my work experience and create something that I felt was missing. Um, you know, the, the, my experience growing up was a pretty harsh one. And, um, and the systems of care that I worked in seemed harsh. It's always talking about what you don't have. You don't have this, you're not good to your kids, or this or this. So I wanted to do something that really spoke to your strengths. Everybody has strengths. And uh, so being, being able to work with those first five women and children, it was an opportunity to look people in the eye and say, okay, you don't have this and you don't have this but you but you you sought help you asked for help um, you want something better for your children you survived foster care and um, and you have a child and rather than succumbing to her going into foster care you're saying I want to do something different so that's how this hmm. whole thing started which is blows my mind that we are where we are today honestly
0: and and um, you know it's so interesting one of the things we've learned is that yeah, there are so many accomplished people whose um, weaknesses somehow turned into their strengths or their liabilities turned into their assets. We've worked with a number of chefs who um, as younger children were sick or had some illness or had Crohn's disease or an allergy and they got fascinated by food and they turned out to study everything about it. You experienced the foster system on your own and then have turned that knowledge into this incredible organization. And don't feel like you need to say any more about this than you want to. When you were four, were, you, were your parents, they were no longer in a position to be able to take care of you, so you went into foster um, care?
2: The relationship between my parents dwindled over those few years to the point where we were just with my mom. My mom struggled with mental health issues as well as substance misuse, and she did something pretty catastrophic, and that day just forever changed mm. the course of our lives. And, and I, I can remember what it felt like to be hungry, to be lonely. You know, I'm 57 years old, And it just leaves such a hollow feeling inside. And to be able to work in a system of care where we can apply SAV to these families to hopefully keep them together, it didn't happen when I was younger. That didn't happen. Um, I see my mom occasionally. And one time I saw her and she was kind of like present. And she's like, What do you do again? And I've been doing it for a long time. Mm. And I told her what I did. And she's like, She looked at me in the eye and she said, I could have used that when you were kids. And then, kind of the curtain. I could have used
0: that when you were kids. Yeah, hmm. and
2: then the curtain closed. The system today is the exact same way. We do have a governor that is looking at at uh, the way children are treated. DCYF. He's really trying to turn that around, and I can't tell you how much I applaud him for that. That someone is actually looking at these kids and saying, "We we can and will do better." So
0: that's an incredible and powerful yeah. story. Thank thank you for sharing it. How old were you when you came out of foster care?
2: I was independent at the age of 16 Mm -hmm. at a time where it's like, we just went to see a judge. I said, I don't want to go there anymore. He's like, okay. So at the age of 16, I was kind of like on my own. And I was really fortunate that I had a community that held me. There were some people from my family of origin. There were some people from the homes that I lived in. But my community really held me. It was my school it was Fecto's Country Store, and these people really loved me. And that's what I want uh, Families in Transition New Horizons to be. New Horizons is for individuals, and when I look at these individuals, I see these grown-ups who were once a child like me. I could be them, and but for the grace of God, I'm not. So I look at them, and I, and I think, why? And when we look at hunger and homelessness, that's what we really need to look at. We need to look at the why of it and stop judging and calling people names and can we build on their strengths no matter who they are? I feel blessed to have a community that helped me and that's what I want families in transition new horizons to be, is that community that, that holds you no matter what. Mm-hmm
0: you know matt when i hear a story like marines i immediately want to like change the mission of share strength to start to work on homelessness and foster do it. issues and i and i say that because <laughs> Uh, I know that you, as a chef, probably get asked to do dozens of things, right? Mm-hmm. Chefs are their mm-hmm. anchors in the community. And everybody comes to them for help and to be part of their charitable efforts. What types of things are you drawn to? How do you decide? How do you balance that with the demands of running a very busy and successful restaurant?
1: Yeah, I, I go by Evan Mallet's model of always say yes, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it gets us both in trouble. Um,
0: but, this is Evan Mallett <laughs> from The Black Trumpet. From here The in Port Black Show. Trumpet.
1: Um, but, you, you know, you, you're right. We're, we're kind of in a very fortunate position as um, chefs and restaurants in the community at this kind of point in time. For, for whatever reason, the world has maybe glamorized us more than we are and made us more popular than chefs we should are be. are celebrities now, And right? so... But it's a very powerful place to be if you can harness that and use it the right way. And I think that that's why this model of always say yes is something that we should practice because we should give back as much as we can. We should overextend ourselves and figure out. We should get involved with everything we possibly can. And hopefully we we keep it all organized and have a good day planner. And sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. I know there's some
0: some issues that are more uh, powerfully... Yeah, um, resonate um, with you than others. I mean,
1: obviously, we're here talking, yep. you know, no, no kid hungry and share our strength, which I am very involved in. Uh, um, I've been involved in with that for a number of years. I've been at the um, the Democratic Governors Association in right. DC. The event, right. I think, three years. I did that one as so, well. Regional events with uh, Andy Husbands in Boston's, yep. as well as the the dinners, um, as well as one that kind of is a similar organization is yours. I work with Lydia's House of Hope in uh, Summersworth that helps women in transition that are maybe coming out of abuse or prison systems that are getting them back on their feet. And they're really focused on giving them life skills and, and, and teaching them. So I go over there and uh, I cook with them once a month and do that. Um, I'm involved with a lot of the organizations that, that Evan is due to his prodding of um, getting me involved and opening me up to um, things like Chef's Collaborative being part of the Heirloom Harvest Project with him as well. Um, we do a lot of work with Gather. I do a lot of work with the, the school systems. Uh, Kate Mitchell mm-hmm. is uh, Garden Kate, as she gets referred to in the underbelly of the world. And she does a lot with the farm to school and getting the kids growing at at all the different Portsmouth schools they they have gardens and one of them has a uh, a sap house where they're actually making maple syrup and,
0: and just the power of kids knowing where food actually comes from
1: and that's very powerful to me because as, as a kid I didn't I I had a I had a great childhood um, you know I have no complaints but I didn't I also didn't know where my food came from and I remember at different points in my life of like maybe actually Tasting a mushroom for the first time like a real mushroom, not a canned mushroom or a real olive, or seeing an artichoke growing on a on an artichoke bush instead of oh, artichokes don't come from a can and a little marinade already i didn't I didn't know that and um, to be able to make that connection at that young age with the with the children and kind of, as I had said before, when I was acclimated to uh, the restaurant and the kitchen life before I even knew what was happening, it's kind of like that's what's happening with these farm-to-school programs is these kids are getting acclimated to growing a radish, knowing what a radish is, and actually then taking it a step further, which is probably the most important, liking a radish and, <laughs> and maybe wanting to grab that over uh, gummy worms or what, what yeah. have you. I haven't reached and, that last step yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think that the, the the process of that growing and that nurturing and then pulling it out it immediately they they're going to pretend that they like it even if they don't because they grew it <laughs> and getting it into these kitchens at the school and um getting chefs in there to to work with them it it's something that i think is is extremely powerful and you can see the difference being made that should resonate moving forward.
0: I'm here with two staff colleagues from Share Strength, and I, I noticed all three of us while you were talking wrote down, Matt Lewis always says yes. So just <laughs> you know, that, that may come back at you. Um, I
2: made a ne- mental note. In of me.
0: <laughs> Maureen, tell us, tell us a little bit more. Uh, help us understand. You, you told us a, a little bit through your own experience and enables me to kind of um, transport myself to who these families are that we're serving today, but some of the issues were different. We had an opportunity recently to talk to Senator Jeannie Shaheen about the opioid crisis and the devastating toll that's that, that that's taken. What should we understand about families that are in transition and are, mm-hmm. and are dealing with homelessness? Yeah,
2: so um, we work with individuals as well as families. And um, when, we, when I think about people who are hungry and homeless, because those two go hand in hand, I look at the safety net and I look at the holes in the net and the the people that fall through are the folks that we that we have the, the folks that we end up with. And uh, Senator Shaheen has been a wonderful wonderful uh, advocate for New Hampshire uh, for kids. Um, and when we look at um, what's happening, there's definitely a housing crisis. New Hampshire is one of the most expensive states to live in. So by by the fact that rents are $1,500 a month and You have to work two part-time jobs to be able to afford a place to live. It's just not going to happen. So that's one of the issues. In Manchester, um, previously, uh, during your previous podcast, you were talking about um, free or reduced lunches. And in Manchester, 57% of the schools, um, of the population of the schools, all, uh, 57% participate in free or reduced lunches. We have some schools that are at the 94%. Um, we have schools that where kids start at this one school, and 100% of them turn over by the end of the year. They don't have that like one school like I did. And when we look at the the issue of substance misuse, you know, alcoholism is still the granddaddy of them all, and that claims lots of families not being together as well as the individuals who are who are using substances to deal with early childhood trauma which is very, very prevalent. Violence is so prevalent with the folks that we work with, whether you're a biggie or a small person. The opioid addiction, you know, people talk about it, and it was like this thing that happened in slow motion, and we own over 20 buildings, and it's over 250 units of housing, and we started seeing, like, why is there such turnover? Why is there such chaos and crises? And and then all of a sudden, it just hit us. And nobody saw it coming. And, when, and finally, it's on top of us. And, um, and it has just plagued the state. And, um, and now we're, you know, I, if you think about the cartoon of the person riding a little train and they're throwing tracks down in front of them as the train's going really, really, really fast, that's what we're doing with the substance misuse system. It was dismantled, so it wasn't the mental health system. So those things were dismantled, and now we're running like crazy to put it together. And, uh, you know, uh, Senator Shaheen talks about the numbers going down, and thank goodness they are. Um, I worry so badly for the children of the parents because these kids are witnessing their own war. They, You know, they see parents dying, come back. Um, In all the years that I've been with Families in Transition, New Horizons, we've never had deaths, and we've had many um, I've actually had to use Narcan to help revive someone. Um, so it is major what's happening. Um, and then when you look at the lasting effects of the opioid addiction in poverty, not having food, we look at food as a prescription for health, just like housing is. And the long-term consequences for that are just immeasurable. So I feel good that we're an organization that is looking at the why and are creating uh, solutions at the why level.
0: Matt, we've talked on previous podcasts about the degree to which mental health uh, issues are, uh, they exist in the restaurant industry as well. There's all Mm. kinds of pressures in the industry. There's some addiction issues uh, that was mentioned uh, on a previous Podcast, uh, and with the death of Anthony Bourdain, for example, a lot of people started to focus on uh, on that issue. Is that something that we, we need to understand better about the restaurant world? Yeah,
1: it is. It's it's something that myself and a lot of members of this community talk about. We we talk about regularly, um, myself and Evan and Evan Hennessy, um, because this is something that hits home with us, not just in the restaurant community, but within ourselves. Like there is a lot of people in the restaurant. Industry in this community and broader that that really struggle with substance abuse and with mental health things. Some of it is some of it's lack of other options. Some of it is it it, it can attract a wide variety of of people into this business um, because you can always get a job in a restaurant. Um, some of it is we don't make a lot of money, work late hours, whatever it so may there's be. Pressures there's
0: pressures as well.
1: Th- th- it's a very high stress environment. Um, you know right across from the kitchen, there's a whole bar of alcohol right there. <laughs> it's looking right at you. <laughs> but the thing is you can you know you can you can talk about all these reasons and and whys all day long, but at the end of the day w- we owe it to ourselves and and to the people that we work with and that work for us to to address this and to help find ways to overcome this. Because it, it, I, I met with your sister today. We, we were meeting today about chefs addressing and this. And fitness issues. Fitness, mm-hmm. fitness in which kind of somewhat goes hand in hand with mental health issues and putting this together in, in a larger light. And when we had finished that meeting with your sister today, I checked my phone and I had, I had a missed call um, from a former cook of mine who was in a very bad place today this afternoon, and he needed help today this is this is ongoing this is regular, yeah. and it's something that's very powerful and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't segregate it doesn't pick and choose it's something that you know to go back to Anthony Bourdain, this was something that was very very powerful and very in, important and meaningful to a lot of us, and to me it really really hit home with me because i've It was like if someone like this, like to me, Anthony Bourdain, and not just because I'm a cook, but I think for almost a lot of people in the world, Anthony Bourdain has, he had the best job in the world. (laughs) He got paid to travel and eat everywhere and uh, talk candidly about it. It was, you know, you can't beat it. And so if someone like that can struggle with the same struggles that all of us can struggle with, it means that none of us have any reason to think that we're above or aren't susceptible to those same challenges. And if there's any silver lining in in any really tragic and unfortunate situation like that, it's that, it's a wake up call for everybody mm-hmm. to address this and say, L- let's not hide from this. Let's not sweep it under the rug. Let's talk about it. And let's talk about it amongst the people that we care about and the people that, that we love and love us and the people that we spend 12, 14 hours a day with. Like, we may not need to tell every gory detail of our lives, but maybe we should talk a little bit more than just the normal kitchen banter that, that happens on a daily basis, which is fun. But there's definitely more there that, that, that needs to be un, uncovered and unearthed.
0: Yeah, and finding a way to sustain that conversation beyond Anthony Bourdain, right? There's moments where, where the spotlight is on this issue. But like you said, it was, you were dealing with it today in a real-time way. Um, Okay, so let's pivot to a brighter note, because some of us might be going out to restaurants tonight. Um, And so I want to understand, for people uh, in Portsmouth, everybody knows Moxie, but we've got listeners from all over the country and from about a dozen other countries around the world. Paint us a little picture of Moxie, what you're trying to accomplish there, what the vibe is, what it feels like, what you hope your your guests will take away.
1: Real quickly, I, I finally came to the point in my career where I wanted to open a restaurant. And I realized real quickly, I had no idea what that meant. Um, I hadn't like, wow, I've been in the restaurants my whole life, but I don't know what it means. And so I had to start figuring that out and doing the legwork as to what it meant to actually open and own a restaurant. And one of the big things that kept coming up, which I wanted to push away from was the word concept and what you're doing, what your purpose is. And, you know, I was, I was young and um not that I'm that intelligent now but I was much less intelligent then and thought well I'm just gonna cook food and people are gonna come like what else is there like I'm gonna make the food taste good we don't have to and everybody kept talking about concept 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 and I went to visit some very successful friends of mine in New York that have restaurants and right when I went down Rich says to me he says, so what's your concept? I said, well, Rich, come on, man. Like, I thought you were with me, like a cook. Like, like did, <laughs> did my business partner, Jay, get a hold of you? Because he keeps drilling me about concept, and I thought you were going to be on my side. And, and he said, no, what's your concept? And I said, well, what's yours, Rich? And he said, to revive Italian-American food on the most iconic Italian street in America. And I said, whoa. <laughs> and so whether, whether that was true or not, the, the reality was that every decision that he made stemmed back to that statement. He knew exactly what his purpose and the restaurant's purpose was, and from that moment, I realized, I better figure out what I'm doing. So then I started thinking, where do I like to eat? What type of food do I like to eat? I like to eat multiple different things, smaller portions, not really larger portions, which equates to a tapas style, which is typically Spanish, and it was like, well, I'm not Spanish, and we're in New England, so why don't I apply that tapas model to New England? So what we are is a modern American tapas bar with a focus on the history, culture, and foodstuffs of northern New England. And I can say that, and now I still have my friend Rich. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good answer. Let's, uh, we're going to open this up to some audience questions in just a couple moments, but before we do, I also want to hear about what comes next for each of you. Maureen, I, I had heard that um, you had helped find shelter for 1,100 individuals in just the last year. That's really <laughs> amazing. And what does it... What does it look like going forward? is there? Do you anticipate even greater need? do you anticipate additional services what's the the future for families in transition New horizons? I got the whole thing in didn't I
2: how did you like how did you know all that so. like I didn't <laughs> send it to you um, so like i'm still very excited about what I do, and with the merger of New Horizons and families in transition we're really able to um, build capacity and leverage change. And I feel very strongly that we can end street homelessness in in Manchester, in the areas that where we, where we work. We can get to the point where we can't make people come in, but if you want to come in, there's a bed for you. And when I look at the food piece, I think that I, I, I look at the food, and again, that's a prescription for health for us. And we're going to be doing a brand-new facility. I'm putting it out there because it will happen. Where people who are homeless can come in and it 's like a dining experience we want to we want to operate on a law of attraction. You can come in and get a healthy snack or whatever it is that you need healthy meals we 're now serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner and uh, and that wasn 't happening before and with the With the food pantry and some of our other programs, I really want kids to know where food comes from because kids are you know people buy food at the corner store or whatever, and they call it food. And we have a a garden, we have a greenhouse, we grow our salads. And I really want to get to a place where um, we can bring kids to the garden and we can grow through the seasons, we can bring it into the pantry, into the soup kitchen, and people can experience what whole foods are really like. I don't know about ending hunger, but I do know about teaching people um, about food and where it comes from, and hopefully they can learn to do it on their own. We, we have big aspirational goals, and I think that we need to keep doing that. We're going to build enough housing. We're going to create ways and find ways to, to make sure people are fed and housed and, and really help people to help themselves uh, in well, a way that we had before.
0: Sitting next to Matt Lewis is not a bad place to, to start. <laughs> we
2: have a concept, too. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so is there a new concept brewing, Matt? <laughs> What's next for you? Um, you you know, a lot of my focus
1: now is sustainability. Let's use the word sustainability, but I want to apply that. What I'm really focused on is applying that to, to, to us, to the people that work at the restaurants and how can we, you know, I, I, I'm really fortunate that we have really great people that work at the restaurants and a lot that have been there for years. Some of them since the beginning, how can I make their quality of life better while retaining them in what can be a very challenging industry as the restaurant business and how do we navigate that and how can I provide ways to let them not only have professional growth, but personal growth as well. And it's something that's kind of changed in me over Mm -hmm. the years a little bit where I wanted to open. I wanted to show that I was worthy of having a restaurant and, and, you know, do all these other things. And now it's like, I want to really feel that I'm giving the people... That are working at the restaurants. Everything I possibly can to them, and that—that's really one of my biggest priorities right now.
0: And there's a, as you know, there's a, a powerful theory of hospitality that um, that I think has a lot of validity, which is, you know, by investing in those people that you work with, they're going to take care of your customers, right? That—that's going to be a model for them. That's going to translate. That's going to go straight to those that you ultimately serve by mm-hmm. by providing that enrichment for them. So that's yeah. that's pretty important. I'm gonna see if we have any audience questions. We've got a couple minutes left.
2: Hi, my name is Alexis. Thank you three for being here tonight and for your thoughtful conversation. I was wondering, do you have any words of wisdom or perspective for those of us in nonprofit food systems and food insecurity work for tackling the challenges of keeping talent to do this work with limited resources?
0: Mm, That's a great question. So how do we uh, invest in talent so that people will stay in this sector and do this work um, changing the food system. I've got some ideas on that, but you have been doing this for a while
2: as um, well, Maureen. One of our strategic priorities is um, investing in those that work at Families in Transition to Horizons. We're now up to about 156 staff, and we know that um, we need to provide them with good benefits. We need to provide them with opportunities for growth. And we need to be the second most important thing in their life. Their family needs to be first. We're looking to to be the best paid and the best benefits because the work that we do is so hard. Uh, so those are the goals that we have.
0: Yeah, I agree with uh, what Maureen says completely, and it's a great question, Alexis. The only way we get lasting change is if we make these investments and if we tackle these issues, they're challenging issues, and they're frankly issues that a lot of others, uh, whether it's the political marketplace or the economic marketplace, have chosen not to tackle. So if we're going to do it, we need to do it with the best resources that are available, not the leftover resources that are available, which is the way people often think of what you know gets channeled into a nonprofit organization. So paying people well, being competitive, making that a career opportunity, uh, we get asked to share strength all the time, um, you know, did some percentage of my donation go to salaries or overhead? And I always say, well, I, you better hope so, because otherwise there's nobody here to turn on the lights, there's nobody here to return the calls, there's nobody here to uh, open your your generous envelope. Um, and one of the things that I think is incumbent upon us uh, in the nonprofit sector to get ahead of that question is to, and and, and the reason people, I think, sometimes are not as as willing or aggressive about investing as talent as they should be is because they don't understand that that translates directly into impact. So, and, And I think the obligation and the responsibility that we have is to not only invest in measuring that impact, but in communicating it. So you know, I'll give you an example that I always think of. In the history of the iPhone, nobody's ever walked into an Apple store and said, I think I would like to buy the iPhone 10, but I need to know what was the overhead out there in Cupertino, California, right? You and in a million years, you wouldn't think to ask that, but any one of us every day gets asked about, you know, are we investing in staff and are we, what, are, you know, what are we paying for salaries and so forth. So what, what that says to me is we buy the iPhone because it meets a need. And you and I and Maureen and others have an obligation to help people understand how we're meeting their need. And as long as we're doing that, they're going to be supportive of whatever means to an end we subscribe to and feel like we have to invest in. It's a really important question for mm-hmm. every organization in the nonprofit sector. So thank you.
2: Um, listening
1: to you is so inspiring for different reasons. But I'm when I listen in Maureen uh, about um, listening the way the in- the integrative way that you are approaching the problem of these families, individuals, I think that's a key. Mm-hmm. That you are providing the uh, place to live, but you are addressing the core issue
2: and the mental health. And mm-hmm. so, how do you get finances? Any way we can. <laughs> <laughs> when I first started, I wrote tons and tons of grants and. And we've been really fortunate that the community has really held the organization in order to keep it, give it away and it comes back. And I feel like that's it. Um, We are present at places where we need to be present. Um, We're consistent, our leadership is consistent when we're out there. We feel very strongly that we're always respectful and we get respect back. Um, And I think that um, that's very much a part of our culture and as a result of that, I think people really trust us. Um, we have a good product, um, just like you have a good restaurant. We have to have a good product as well so that people continue to invest in us. And you know, we have a substance use treatment program and lots of other programs that have grown over the years. And it's all about relationships and maintaining um, those relationships. Um, it's so critical.
0: What would the revenue pie chart look like in terms of foundations, individuals, others? How does that, what percentages? Uh,
2: We have about a $14 million budget right now. We own about 43 million in housing. I'd say it's about half federal, um, and then more than that is state. And then we have revenues coming in from the rents that we have. So that's probably, I'm probably going over like 100% here, but the, the amount that we raise in that is about $2 million. We need to get that up to like four, because the, with all the federal resources, it's like you get painted into a corner, there are so many restrictions. So we really need to open that chart. So I'd say, aside from the $2 million, the rest is foundations and federal grants. We, 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 we have an excellent excellent grant writing program.
0: And we can learn more. Anybody who's listening can learn more at Families in Transition New Horizons. Yes, you bet. That's the place to go. Yep. Okay. Maureen Beauregard, thank you so much for being with us. Um, And Matt Lewis, Moxie, thanks for not only being such a success here and such an important part of the Portsmouth community, but for your work in the nonprofit sector mm-hmm. and your passion for sustainability and, and investing in the team, as you described. Um, it's really a treat to have you part of Share Our Strength, and we're so grateful for the support that you've given to us. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for being with us. Special thanks to the Music Hall uh, Loft here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to my friend Jeff Johnston, who uh, basically gave us no choice but to come here, and it turned out to be a great, great idea because we've had a fabulous evening. Uh, to our producer, Paul Whittle. Woody, couldn't do it without you. And to the team at Share Our Strength, uh, who always makes this happen. And to my sister, Debbie Shore, who's been such an important part of this podcast, and Kelly Griffin, uh, neither of whom could be here the whole time tonight. I'm Billy Shore. This is Ad Passion and Stir. Thanks. Add Passion and Stir,
1: we'd like to thank the sponsors of the Innovation Education Series at The Loft in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thank you to the lead sponsor, B2W Software, the season sponsors, Carrie and Giampa Realtors, Port Walk Place, and the Riverhouse Restaurant. Thanks to the contributing partner, the University of New Hampshire, and the presenting sponsor, Al Nobop. And we would also like to thank the series sponsors, Atlantic Orthopedics and Sports Medicine and Bangor Savings Bank. And, of course, thanks to the staff and crew
0: at The Loft. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.